Hello, and welcome to Frame by Frame, a song-by-song analysis about legendary progressive rock band King Crimson. Come and join us in our test of discipline. Greetings, comrades. We are back. This is Ryan. Joining me as always is Avery. Avery, how's it going? Not bad. How are you? Doing all right. Doing all right. And so for this week, before we get into our song, um, I wanted to read a very lovely email from a, a fan from Germany who wrote this on, who sent this May the 2nd, and we're recording this on May the 3rd. So so thank you, Mr. I hope I pronounce it right, Jan Henrik Holst. Um, and if it's all right with you, I'm going to read the whole thing. Hey guys, big fan of your pod, writing from Germany. I've been a Crimson fan for more than 20 years now, although with varying levels of intensity. My first album was In the Wake of Poseidon, which is probably an odd place to start with, which I think, Dave, you can relate to that. But it's still quite dear to me. Next came Power to Believe, which I still think is their strongest since Discipline, my other favorite by the band. Like I said, I'm probably not the most typical Crimson fan. Though I imagine a lot of people view Discipline as one of, if not their best record, but I, don't know. I, I, I think it's yeah. I think it's gotten there more these days. So yeah, I only, it's definitely one of their most highly regarded. Yeah, I mean it's it's Discipline, man. Um, yes, I lost, <laughs> I lost myself. Okay, I only completed my studio album discography about two years ago, so there are still a lot of gray areas in their work which I haven't discovered thoroughly yet. I was just the happier when I learned about your podcast on Facebook, and even though I've only listened to the first four album reviews until now, this is an excellent companion to my journey through the Crimson Kingdom. Well, thank you very much. Not only do you have interesting facts about each song's history, <laughs> composition, and the people behind it. Contrary to popular belief, it's not just Bop and Bobby doing everything, which is very true. Um, But it's also very entertaining to listen to your different experiences (laughs) and preferences with the music, showing the band's great variety and lasting relevance well outside the prog rock arena. So glad to hear I'm not the only person who thinks Indoor Games is one of the best songs King Crimson ever did. Ha ha! I have allies in this argument. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) But... But Avery can be rest assured that hey ho, hey ho indeed. But but he also adds Avery can be rest assured that I'm just as much with them on the fact that Eyes Wide Open is one of the is probably the best ballad they did. So there you go. Which I like that one too. (laughs) So thank you guys for doing this. I'm always looking forward to the next episode. Especially excited for the Blue Era. So thanks from Hamburg. So. And he actually, he gave us a top five Crimson songs, uh, limited to just one song per record. So number five is Indoor Games. Number four is Facts of Life. Number three is Cat Food. Number two is One More Red Nightmare. And number one is Indiscipline, which is quite the eclectic top five, Hmm. if if I were to say so. Yeah. But I I, yeah, I, res- I respect it. No court. Interesting no, choices. <laughs> no court. No larks. Yeah. You know, I'm, I vibe. So so thank you, Jan. We, we appreciate it. And if anybody else listening wants to email us, just go to framebyframepod at gmail.com. Um, 
we usually put it in the description of the episode in case you don't remember. So it'll be there. All right. Now let's talk about this week's track. The, the last song on the Lark's Tongues in Aspic album. Lark's Tongues in Aspic part two. So Avery, what do you think of, I'm going to call it Lark's two. What do you think of Lark's two? Electric Boogaloo. Yeah, it's to me, it's it's not as strong as part one. It's really, really great closure for the album. Like, and I I read that this was mainly written by Fred. He conceived this and part one as the ending and beginning of uh, Crimson Show. Like part one will be the opening and then part two the closing and you really get that sense listening to this album like you get through all of side two there's all these moments where you feel like they're like building up towards something and so you can't you keep getting all these like build-ups and breakdowns and then with this song at like the very end, like you get that moment where they all stop and then you just go like crazy just at the very end with all their instruments. And then it's like, like you just get that sense of like, they're just like, we are done in here. Like this is the end of the show, we're done recording. And it's just like a really intense explosive way to end the piece that they were working on and the music they they were composing for this era. I would agree. Um, I was thinking about it yeah. today, <laughs> today as I was listening to it. And I feel like other than Schizoid Man, I, f- I find this to be the most defining song in King Crimson's discography. Like when I think of King Crimson, hmm. I think of Larks too. Like I think of that riff, which is the song. And that is, that's such a frip riff. It's a very easy riff to play, but yeah, it's just that is Crimson. That riff, that progression, the, the switching time signatures, the heavy aggressive metalness. Um, and as you mentioned, like the ending, which is sort of like the, it's just like the big rock ending you know, where they just end with doing yeah, everything like crazy. Just like yeah. it makes me think of like the Who, like smashing all their instruments on stage or whatever. Mm-hmm. But like that kind of thing. But instead of Fripp like destroying his guitar by thr- smashing it on the ground, he's literally like picking it so hard it's disintegrating in his hands. You know. Um, yeah. And then, and then Bruford at the end asks if he can do another one immediately, which I love that little bit. Um, <laughs> But yeah, like there's just yeah, something. Yeah, I actually didn't notice that until I was doing my notes. Because it end because it, it takes so long to get. There. Yeah, like I get the sense. Yeah, yeah, like I got the sense like all of them were just like totally done by the like by the time they got to that part of the song. Like this must have been like one of the last things they recorded, and then there's just Bill in the back. Like, uh, can I do it again? Mm-hmm. <laughs> which is a very Bill thing to do. I, I feel the very ending of the song, yeah. it's, it, it feels like a mixture of A Day in the Life, 
where a day in the life, that big E chord that just hangs for like a very long time. And then at the end of Larks 2, you have that that guitar fuzz just going and going, you know, just kind of letting the sound naturally take. Yeah. It's almost kind of soundscapey. Almost. Considering he yeah. he did do no pussy like footing. Very, with very abrasive abrasive soundscaping but yeah yeah and he had like done no pussy footing with eno like right before he did larks so so i think those ideas were maybe in his head and he wanted to incorporate that a little bit but i was also going to say there's also hang on he he did no pussy footing before larks yeah this i believe so because larks came out in 73 and pussy footing came out in 72 yeah didn't yeah i always had it in my head that it was 73 let me double check. The first half, um, the Heavenly Music Corporation was done the 8th of September, 72. And then the second side, uh, Schwarzka Girls, was done the 4th and the 5th of August, 73. So he started it before Lark's Tongues, I believe, but then finished it later after, hmm. he, after he got a chance to do it. So... Yeah, that, that's really interesting to think, like, on one hand, he was doing Lark's Tongues and Aspic, and then, on the other hand, ambient music with Brian Eno. Oh, yeah. And that would sort of persist throughout quite, his career. But quite I was a range. Gonna, yeah, but I was also going to say yeah. the, the little bit where Bruford asks if he can do another one. It reminded me a little bit of Islands, because at the end of Islands, you have all that, like, studio chatter. And it, and it takes you a long time to get oh, there. Oh, yeah, yeah. So it gave me a little vibe of that, but I don't think, I think that's more of a coincidence than anything. But, um, but regardless of that, yeah, just everything about this song to me is King Crimson. And if I was to give somebody one song of King Crimson to sort of like define what they are as a band, I'd probably just play them like a version of Larks 2 because it just... It's everything, you know? Yeah, you know, that 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 would work. Because, like, a lot of people would probably go with Schizoid Man, but, like, that was very much, like, kind of, like, a one-off, like, one one era. They didn't really do that sort of thing again. Mm-hmm. And Larks 2 sort of Larks defines two, what they're like, going to do forever. Yeah, and, like, you don't have to worry about, like, like, this, you wouldn't have to worry about showing this hypothetical person, like, one king crimson vocalist who wasn't there throughout the whole thing like yeah it's instrumental as well like with all yeah exactly and then every every lineup did it from 73 onward so there there um, was there was one lineup who didn't do it but that was the that was like the 99 2000 band because they did Larks 4. Oh, yeah, yeah. And then they replaced Larks, Larks 2 with Larks 4 live. But Larks 4 is very similar to 2 anyway. Hmm. But we'll, we'll talk about that in episode like 80 something. <clears throat> but yes, but yes, Larks yeah. 2 is one of the most played King Crimson songs. And I can kind of see why. Because on the surface, it sounds very simple. Yeah. Um, in fact, I was thinking today that Larks 2 is almost uh, King Crimson cosplaying as Black Sabbath, um, being like very heavy and riff based. Mm. And it is metal. Like I would say Larks 2 is very metal. 
Yeah. Yeah. And, and I'm pretty sure yeah, Sabbath like were inspired very, by Crimson as well. And... Like, I'm, I feel like Sabbath were inspired by Crimson. Yeah. So it's almost kind of the turnaround of Crimson being influenced by Sabbath a little bit. You know, because it almost sounds like a riff that Iomi would come up with because it's a very simple riff. But Fripp and Iomi are very different guitar players. So Fripp does something a lot more technical with it. And kind of jazzy. Yeah, like I was looking into this and yeah, when I was uh, when I was doing my notes, um, someone wrote somewhere like all the different time signatures that are in this song and. If so, it says 11, 8, 10, 8, 7, 8, 5, 8, 5, 4, and 4, 4. Yeah, that sounds so, about right. Yeah, like it, it's like on the surface, it sounds a lot less complex than Lyrics 1. And, and it is less complex than part, than in part 1, but it's still very, very complicated. Like, there's no, like there's no like underlying like groove or anything in like four four throughout the whole song that's really i think there is a groove to part two i don't know like there is that riff but like it comes yeah it kind of it's just a very weird weird groove yes but it does kind of like to follow or like possible to follow but yeah yeah like it it's it's like easy. unlike part one, you can kind of follow it, yes, like very rhythmically. Much so. But it's yeah, it, it in a way it's almost the polar opposite of part one, because part one is this very long, dynamic, almost like classical piece that has all these different movements and ideas throughout yeah. it. And then you have part two, which essentially just is playing off of that riff the entire time like either like variations of it or little extended runs or like even the softer parts are still like that same riff. It's just Fripp moving the fingering up the guitar. So it's just, he just really liked that riff, which I don't blame him. It's a fantastic riff. And he would even sort of play upon that riff and he would play upon it by using, but in different other songs through Crimson's career, having similar sounding riffs. Like, I don't think it's shocking to say that Fracture, the very end of Fracture, when that big riff comes in, it sounds a little arcs too. Yeah. But that might be yeah, because... Yeah, I was Fripp just going to say. But that might have been just I think he just really enjoyed, like, that specific hand movement or something. Yeah. I mean, it's, been... it, it's, it's a very simple riff. You're essentially I mean, just... it, it sounds cool, too. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It, it To me, the, the tricky part, I've tried to play it. The tricky part is just trying to get like the muting and everything right. Cause I think the riff falls in four, mm. but it's one of those like odd times. I think it's, he's playing it in an odd time, but it's one of those that when you play it in four, four, it sounds fine. Like it resolves itself, but, but it's mm. not four, four, I guess it's not like the riff pretty much for like the violin solo, which that is in an odd time. Yeah. You know? But but yeah, there's surprisingly a lot of musical yeah. complexity. And that's a very track. interesting. Yeah, that that violin solo is kind of it, it's it's interesting in comparison to the one that we get in in part one, like this really 
like it's like this moment of like calm almost and like this total chaos whereas the the solo we get here just accentuates the like the chaos in this piece that was already going like there's no like it doesn't really like calm down it just just has moments where like it builds up then it brings itself back down a tiny bit then keeps building up and then it just does that throughout the whole song until we get that that breakdown at the end yeah that violin solo sounds like a violin getting strangled yeah that is a violin in pain very much so and it's just and you just it's another tick in david cross's king crimson his time another highlight for him um as yeah. well like his violin work it took me a long time to really appreciate it on this track because it's easy to like just think of it as as fripp wet and buford you know power trio because it has that power trio vibe um and there yeah. is some there is some mere percussion in there but you know and it, and, it, and it pops its head up here and there but it doesn't overtake anything um but it's still yeah have because you'll get those little like screeching noises and little hits here and there. But I think cross like when cross comes in on the violin during like the softer moments in the track, it it, just that, that hang, just that one note that just kind of hangs on. And then he joins Fripp for the, for the guitar riff is just really, really good. Um, And then when they would do it live, um, because I don't think it's on the record version, but the live versions from this era, um, Cross is sort of accentuating the heavier riff live, which just sounds kind of weird to me. I guess yeah. it's just that he's doing something. But um, in my listening to the live version of the Wetton era, um, his solo is not as strong as the studio version, in my opinion. Um, yeah. I, I like the 70s yeah. live versions of Larks 2. Um, cause I've listened to like night watch, I've listened to the USA version and all that, and they're solid. They're very good, but they just don't have that studio version magic for some reason. Like something about it sounds almost kind of sterile. Yeah. I don't know why, but, it, but in my opinion, I think Lark's part two, I prefer it live, but not from this era. Yeah, I noticed in the the live versions from the Wet and Hour that I listened to, they were a lot like it was a lot faster and more oh, aggressive, yeah. and it really did not take much time at all before David Cross found himself in a place where he was kind of getting drowned out by the the bass, the drums, and the guitar every night. Yeah, like I even think- in like in this solo, which is composed as part of the song, like you listen to it and in some of these live versions, like it, it sounds like he's like really struggling to kind of get it in there. Yeah. I think this song is and probably like, emblematic of the whole, like David Cross getting drowned out in Krim. Like to me, this is the song. Yeah. That I think of. Yeah. It's like, yeah, and it's like the first, it's like the last track of the first album he's on. You can already tell there's going to be a problem. And it, it's, and like, I just kind of wonder sometimes, like, what if things had gone like a little differently and we'd gotten to hear more of like David Cross's violin? But 
I mean, we'll 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 yeah, think about, like, we'll probably think about that when we get to like red, but because I feel like almost this yeah. era, this era of Krim was almost doomed to the, from the start, but but I don't want to get into that now. It, yeah, because I don't want to. Yeah, that's a whole nother thing. So yeah, but but yeah, we can talk about the other live eras because quite a few eras did this. So we can talk about it. Um, there's the '80s version, which. For the longest, oh yeah, yeah, I listened to the uh, the Absent Lovers version, mm-hmm. and wow, it's fast. And it's like, just like, yeah, I've listened to quite like a the, few. The Nightwatch version is is faster than the original, and the Absent Lovers version was the only '80s version that I listened to. I've listened to other like and, '80s versions of this throughout the years. Um, like I've listened to versions in '82 um i think they did it in 81 as well yeah and they're all fantastic like for the longest time it was my the 80s version of larks 2 was my preferred version like i like that it's faster because it has it has almost that larks 3 influence where it's almost kind of dancier and more upbeat but still maintains that um aggression and heavy riffness and then having blue replace cross's violin part is like the perfect choice um yeah and i even, know i love that and also in the absent lovers version i love when um levin does some like bass harmonic stuff on the kind of slower parts like he's experimenting with his yeah. take on the bass which is really cool um and yeah it's just it's such a fun version to listen to even riffs even fripp is playing uh, playing with the riff like he'll put it in like other higher parts and like him and blue are almost playing off of each other in the weird time signature thing they did in the eighties. Um, like to me, it sounds like they're having yeah. fun with this track. Whereas like this, the wet era to me, it doesn't sound like they're having fun playing it, but mm. the eighties version sounds fun. Yeah. Like I, I, I get what you mean. Yeah. Cause like, I think with, the wet era like they would always close their show with it and like by by the time they got to that point in the show like they were all kind of tired another thing that that i was thinking was like like you think of how larks one wasn't really it wasn't revisited until the like the current era but fripp was able to rework part two into like all these other different lineups and Mm -hmm. i'm i'm thinking part of the reason or possibly like the main reason for that is that like he was the the main composer of that song whereas part one was group effort so yeah Mm -hmm. yeah so he wouldn't like he wasn't the person who wrote like like john's part or david's part or whatever so he would have had a lot more trouble like kind of like translating that mm. but with part two like he pretty much wrote the whole thing so when these new lineups would come together he'd be like okay like we're doing this and i'm sure like the different members would be like okay well i'm on this instrument so i'm gonna do this with this part but like the main thing was like it was mainly fripp like it was oh, yeah. fripp's ideas being presented absolutely absolutely and yeah and it's, and, uh, it's a pretty big difference from what you get in the talking drum like when you listen to this album the whole way through because yeah Fripp kind of sits out for most of that track and then 
Mm. It's like he's waiting. Like he's like, just like like he's creeping behind song, everybody. Like, yeah. <laughs> it's like that picture of him with David Sylvian in 1993. Yes, absolutely. You Another just one. see like yeah, you know what one I'm talking about? Yes, I do. Okay. <laughs> oh yeah. And so <laughs> I just remembered ripping that, the shadows. Yeah. And I just remembered how you, we were talking about like the big ending of Larks two. Cause I just remembered that like part one was conceptualized as sort of like the big bang, the beginning of the universe. And then Larks part two was conceptualized as sort of the apocalypse. That's like the end of the world. Um, but I don't get that vibe from yeah. it at all. Um, it's, it's just like a, yeah, I don't get an apocalyptic feel from from part two. I just like it's just some heavy prog. If anything, but I read somewhere that if anything, oh, what were you gonna say? I I just I had this thought like this morning, but it didn't just come back to me till now. And it's like I think you can make comparisons to like Lark's Part One and Schizoid Man in terms of like their placement in the album and sort of like the big effect that it has on you. I think you could almost make that comparison with Arcs 2 and Core of the Crimson King. You know, they both come at you immediately. Mm-hmm. Um, they're a bit more like repetitive, quote unquote, and are very well-known tracks. You know, to me, I don't know, there's something about them that are almost kind of emblematic of that period. Oh, yeah. And I'm just thinking like going off of that analogy, like, you can also kind of relate uh, like the talking drum and Moonchild with them being mm-hmm. like the, like the quiet track. I talk to the wind is um, book of Saturday. Epitaph is exiles is Lark's part is Lark's an aspic a ripoff of court. Yeah. Well, the only one is easy money. You can't really fit that there, but yeah. Easy money. That doesn't have an equivalent cat food. Cat food is its equivalent. Yeah, I mean, I think Fripp was trying to do everything different this time, but then it's like, you, there was also, there was what he knew, like he was still working with what he knew in a lot of ways. I think it's just because, I think some it's just of, like the similarities, I think, were just kind of coincidental. Yeah, like I think it's just because in the court has such a good flow that Fripp, was, I don't think Fripp was intentionally yeah. trying to cop that flow. I think it was just, he just recognized that songs work well placed in this manner for an album. And so having like part two at the end, almost having the chord vibes just kind of flows, I guess. Um, It's just, it was just an idea I had this morning that I just thought was interesting. I don't think that was their intention, but like, it's an interesting idea. Yeah. I, mean, I don't think so either, but I, I, I like, often get interested in like yeah. conscious things because I think a lot of music, like inspiration yeah. and coincidences are just very subconscious that like you take in ideas that maybe you don't think about at all and then they just sort of happen. And I remember reading somewhere that Fripp said that this song is about sex. I don't know how. And this song does not strike me as particularly sexy, but I'm sure Fripp found a way. <laughs> it, it, like I imagine we could, uh, yeah, I'm... we 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 could write into him and Toya's show and like ask them that. 
god. Be like, be like, dear Toya and Robert, has Robert ever put on King Crimson in the bedroom before? Signed a interested fan. <laughs> Though I would I wouldn't be shocked if Fripp tried to like use the song to in like a sexy way, but I don't know. Like I, I just think it's just King Crimson doesn't have that energy about it, you know? Like King Crimson can be romantic. Yeah. But just... I, but I don't think they could be sexual. Mm. But I think like the romantic, like yeah, the, like, like the like the music g- is is too angular and weird. Yes, but I think the more kind of if Crimson has a romantic side, I think it just comes more from Blue. But you know, we'll, we'll get to that. We'll get to that anyway. Yeah. But sp- but speaking of Blue, um, as I mentioned, I was a huge fan. Of, I'm still a huge fan of the '80s version of Arcs Two, and always thought it was my favorite, but when I listened to the nineties band play it um, on the Vroom Vroom record, um, they did it in 96. So it's a 96 version that they played in Mexico city. Mm -hmm. I was blown away. I was like, Holy shit. This sounds amazing. Um, It's nineties crim. So it's still heavy. It's heavier than eighties crim. Um, You know, those that that real distorted yeah, and I guitar tone. it's like it's it's really fast yeah and again yeah. i like the speed i like when it's faster something about it just resonates with me more um but just hearing bill and pat play off of each other on this track was just like amazing chemistry because you have bill playing it a lot more looser than he ever has because at that point he's so deep into his jazz thing that that's just how he's gonna play and then you have Pat just kind of being the weird guy yeah. on the side, like not playing any straight beats, just doing his thing. But they're so like perfectly in like loose jazz sync that it really just makes the track for me. And of course, having two bass players allows the song to have more sonic depth as well. Um, I think Blue solo on Absent Lovers is yeah, better. This... But overall, I was mm. thoroughly impressed and and then that's when I realized that damn I do not listen to enough '90s crim when I really should, because they're just absolutely killing it. Yeah, I I very very rarely listen to to '90s crim. Really, anything past three of a perfect <laughs> pair, I don't listen to much at all. Well, we'll change that. But when I when I listen to the larks, yeah. <laughs> When I um when I listened to the um the '96 version of Larks two, I like yeah I I just noticed like right away like wow this is really fast and mm-hmm. just that there was like a lot going on it was very very dense like oh yeah that was the word that popped into my head yeah very dense yeah for a, for and a you can span. you can also hear and you can also like. You you can hear just like that '90s grunge sound that they had going. Like Bob and Bobby was definitely listening to Soundgarden. I can I've I've heard more than once that he he's a fan of that band. He likes and, Tool. Yeah, I can hear that. <laughs> I, I I could see why. It, some, um, you said I you listened see- to the. Uh, yeah, I could see Fripp liking like Tool and Soundgarden, maybe Alice in Chains back in like the '90s. I get that, 
Um, and mm-hmm. I think it's, I think it's just him. Look, I, I've, I've always thought that he was just fascinated with like new guitar tones and just trying to like find ways of being heavier, Yeah, you know? Um, and I think appreciated that kind of heavy music was more in back then and him just kind of wanting to jump on that a little bit mm. to add some extra aggression, which is also, I think part of why he got Trey and Pat in there to add some more beef to the band. Um, but I just found it worked incredibly well for that time. And I think it's aged decently well. Like, you know, it's mm. the nineties, but I just think it's very solid. Yeah. So like the only thing the absent lovers version has Do you think percent over this version is Adrian's guitar solo. Like the absent lovers one is amazing. Oh yeah. And then this one, it's good, but it kind of gets drowned out a little bit. Yeah, yeah, it does. Just with six different musicians being up there. Exactly. But with Bob and Bobby having been a grunge fan in the 90s, do, do you think he enjoyed Pablo Honey when that came out? And then when the Benz was released, like he got the CD, it was just like, what the fuck is this? Something tells me he has... <laughs> not heavy enough for him. Some tells me he's never listened to Radiohead. Yeah, no, probably not. <laughs> Whereas I'm pretty sure Radiohead has listened to King Crimson. I'm pretty certain of that. Because I think when they get to like, okay, computer, I can hear a little crim in there, but more in like the weird complexity stuff. Not so much you know, like heaviness, but. The the guy who, uh, who messaged me, who may have been the person who emailed us with a different name, actually... <laughs> um, we we <laughs> yeah he said something to me today about uh, i guess johnny greenwood said in a 1997 radiohead documentary for okay computer that none of them likes prog which surprised me because they've mentioned that they like pink floyd but that's more periphery prog they don't but like prog you, you would think with like the keyboards and stuff like i guess not that's surprising given how kind yeah, of proggy like, they are. Like, I would argue they're more proggy yeah, than Pink Floyd. They, they are kind of, yeah. So. <laughs> but anyway, <laughs> before I go off about Radiohead again, <laughs> uh, you uh, you mentioned that you, um, you listened to the Meltdown version, right? And the Radical so Action I, version. I listened to that one today. Yeah. With with the Jacko stuff, um, yeah, I I only listened to the the meltdown one. That's fine. With 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 the it's, Jacko it's era, with the Jacko era, I try to like listen to more than one version because I know the earlier stuff sounds a bit rougher than like the later stuff. Because um, yeah. they get they get more time to sort of develop these ideas. Um, for Larks too, I mean they do a fine job of it. Again, it's Larks too. Like it's hard to mess up. But it's not my favorite. It's a lot slower, like noticeably slower, which I think the whole Jacko era is noticeably slower. When it's they... a lot, yeah. And I do not like that at yeah, all. Yeah, that was... It just trudges. I didn't me. like it either. Um, I, I wasn't a big fan. Like, it, first off, like, with it being, like, really, like, slow, like... There was that, but the main thing that bothered me was just there was just too much going on. Like 
the nineties version was dense, but they, they kind of made it work and like the like nineties prog way. Yeah. But with there being like three drummers here, like that that's what does it. That's what makes it that's what makes it too much. Like there's just no there's no room for any of the other instruments to breathe. There's no moments of like quiet or any any space at all. Like in the moments where on the studio track you would have like you could just hear like Fripp and Wetton playing, like you would get those those parts, but then like there would still be that percussion going in the background. And exactly. It's just it's just way too much. I, I would agree. Um, though the, it does have Mel Collins going nuts on the sax and the solo, which is which is good for me. Uh, I'll give him that. Um, yes, I enjoyed that part. Yes, but unfortunately, like with most of the Jacko era, it just falls kind of flat. And and I, I'll just I'll still never quite understand to this day why. Like Radical Action, Meltdown, all these live records are rated so highly amongst King Crimson fans. Like, I'll just, I'll never quite understand it. Yeah. Yeah, I think with with some of these guys in the current King Crimson lineup, there was, there must have been like this incredible, like initial excitement for, you know, like people like, like guys like Pat Mazzolato and Gavin Harrison having been King Crimson fans in the past. Well, like, Pat's been there like, since Yeah, 90s. Gavin Harrison is a great example of this. A former, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but Gavin Harrison joined later, so mm-hmm. sticking with, yeah. with that. Like, he was yeah. he was a drummer of Porcupine Tree before, before Crimson. And as we know, Porcupine Tree is just a bunch of Crimson fanboys. But it's like, fantastic, though. Stephen Wilson. Yes, yes, it is. Yeah. I love Porcupine Tree. Like, I like, adore like, them. Yeah, like you listen but, to yeah, you but, listen to Porcupine Tree, and like Gavin's slaying, and he's like such a tasty fucking drummer. Like he's so good. But then when I listen to him in Crim, it just sounds like he's phoning it in. Like that he was initially excited to do yeah, it. Yeah, what? Where I was going with this? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's where I was going with this. Like when, when he was first like offered the job, like obviously, like that must have been like a, a dream come true, like to be joining one of his favorite bands. But then, like over time, like the novelty wore off, and then he's just like, oh, I just gotta play fucking Larks again, beep beep yeah. boop, like. And I, and but I he feel- didn't really go beep beep boop. He was a drummer, but yeah. But I feel like. <laughs> He doesn't, you know, <laughs> I, I almost I almost feel like he doesn't get because but that could just be the three drummers or it just could be how Fripp wants the songs to be played. I don't know. It could be a combination. Whereas I think Gavin doesn't yeah. really get to stretch. Himself yeah, there's definitely player. multiple. He doesn't get to stretch because because yeah. we can talk yeah. about it a little bit because I should have listened to the 2008 version of this because um, I love that 08 show, the Chicago show. Because it's Gavin and Pat, the two of them, and they are a killer duo. Like they're monsters, you know. And I think I've said it before in the pod. It should have just been the two of them, just the two of them, because they work off of each other very well. 
and they have a lot of muscle, but I think adding a third in there just made it way too crowded, you know, and it just kind of affected the dynamic. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah, like the whole time I was listening to the Meltdown version of Larks 2 today, I was just like, there is just so much happening here, like, it's, like, they they don't need three drummers. <laughs> They've never needed three drummers. Like you, you just need two and you're good. Yeah. But yeah, or just one Bill Bruford. Bruford ain't good doing that anymore. He don't care. But yeah, like <laughs> But yeah, I do think a, another factor was also just since like these drummers would also have to take into account there were two other drummers in the band and they didn't want to play over them exactly so like that would that would limit them it's it's a whole it's a whole issue i think with this modern band that just refuses to get addressed or like fripp has just made up some excuse in his head to why it needs to be this and he's refusing to move on it i don't know yeah you know or you know we could just or we could just now at at this point we could just be outliers and like everybody else loves it and thinks it's amazing and we're just the weirdos who don't like it (laughs) i don't know (laughs) Uh, i i I don't think so from (laughs) from what i see on all the king crimson groups i'm in (laughs) well i remember i don't think we have an unpopular opinion here i guess because i think when they were still fresh. Like I remember people giving me shit for having critiques of this version of Krim. Um, but it was, I think it was more like earlier when they like just started and it was like still new. So I think people were just getting used to the fact that Crimson is back. Um, but I think you're right with, as time's gone yeah. on, more people have started to go like, eh, I don't know about this. I don't know about this. I know there are people who still defend Jacko like yeah. to the hill, which is fine. That's a, I think that's more of a preference thing than anything, but, um, mm. it's just, it's just, I, 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 I implore every King Crimson fan listening who really likes the Jacko era and hates us for being so mean about it. Um, I would go and hunt down any of those 2008 King Crimson shows. There's not that many of them. The big one is the Chicago one. Um, Hunt that down, listen to that, and then tell me that the, this modern version is better than that. Like 2008 to me was a really special thing that should have lasted and it's a complete shame it has it it went nowhere after that so like i've said it before and i'll say it again uh, what he, was the lineup that played in 2008 it was fripp blue levin mastelato and gavin harrison oh that sounds wonderful yeah and if you take that and, lineup and add mel collins to it i'm sold yeah but unfortunately, yeah, that, we don't have that. Fripp didn't want to go anywhere with that. But I, yeah, I, heard, I, I don't think the three drummers thing is ever going to change. Like that was probably what Fripp had in mind forming this current era of King Crimson. Like, yeah, like it's an idea. Think, it's a, I don't know if it's a good idea, yeah. but it's an idea. You know what I mean? So yes, it it is. It is an idea. I will, I'll give it that. But it's one that I don't think is going away anytime soon. 
So I think we just kind of have to live with it. Yeah. It's like, yeah, like I, I'm not expecting any major lineup changes to the current era of King Crimson. Yeah. Well, I, and, you I, know, it's crazy yeah, to me. We're, we're, we're done with I've lineup changes. This, like, you wrote King Crimson's heyday. Yeah. Like their heyday in like the 70s and 80s, they were never able to maintain a consistent lineup. Now, like, they're all past retirement age. And, like, the, the youngest member of the band, I think, is Pat Mastelotto, who's about the same age as my parents, who are in their mid-50s. <laughs> and it's like, now, now he gets the, the, the stable lineup. <laughs> well, it's because it's they're all old and they can't move around as much as they used to in their younger days. <laughs> Yeah, they're just stuck with him. They're just, <laughs> yep, they're just stuck. Um, yeah, so this uh, Larks 2 is the song that they've played the most live, isn't it? Like, we, I remember we it's talked the, about that a little bit the other it, night. It's their second most played song live. The song they played most live is oh, Red. Oh, yeah, and then the most played is Red. Yes. Yeah, that that surprised me. But I like I'm guessing that that only became like a like Red only took that spot like recently, I'm guessing. I think so. Because they didn't play that live until until the 80s. Mm -hmm. Those glorious 80s versions of Red. Yes. But enough about Red. What were your final thoughts on Larks 2? before we close out this this album there's a lot to say about this song and like this whole this whole album like i i was excited to talk about this album from like the day we started the podcast and i i think like this song like it's like the perfect bookend for for this album like i mentioned this one like earlier in this episode, but like I like when I listen to like shows from this era and like this album, like I get the sense that they're like building something and then uh, like they're they're like building something throughout like the whole show and then that ending of Larks Two is just them like just breaking it down and and then just going on to do to do it again like the next night just pretty much the same thing just slightly different yes yes but yeah yes. like when i read that fripp had conceived this as like the end of a king crimson show like yeah yeah that's that's spot on and he was probably starting to get this idea from the islands era i'm thinking because they had some pretty pretty crazy moments at certain points. And just with like that energy building throughout like the whole show, like you reach a point where like all of that energy just builds up and explodes. And, and the end result and, is, is something glorious. 
And as, as someone who is not a musician and can't read sheet music, I'm just wondering how the ending of Larks 2 would translate to sheet music. Like, I'm just imagining, like, a big, like, question mark or something where, like... <laughs> it's like, I don't know, just, like, strum your guitar as quickly and aggressively as you possibly can. <laughs> I think there there probably is something for that. Um just like a like a crazy big like, yeah. like free ending, but um I wouldn't know the exact terminology yeah. for it. But oh yeah, before we go, um It's like free jazz and metal at the same time. Exactly. Um oh no, yeah, before we go, just... um I listened to a couple of cover versions and uh the cover versions are fine. You know, it's just interesting to hear other people tackle the riff, essentially. Um, but the most famous cover version of this, and I know some people probably would have mentioned if I didn't say it, was uh, Dream Theater. They did a cover of it on the special edition of their Black Clouds and Silver Linings album from 2008, I believe. And all I will say in closing, you know, we'll close this episode on this is that Dream Theater sucks, and their version of Larks 2 sucks, all right? And I don't want to hear any any bullshit from you Dream Theater fans complaining to me about how I can't appreciate true prog metal art when I know you fuckers are just as up your own ass as James Labrie and John fucking Petrucci, okay? So don't give me no bullshit, all right? Dream Theater sucks, and you suck for liking them. And that's it. So that is the episode. Thank you all so much for listening. Bye, everyone. And we'll see you next time when we talk about when we'll talk about <laughs> the next King Crimson album, Starless and Bible Black, and the first track on that, which is The Great Deceiver. So until then, bye bye <laughs> Fuck off, Dream Theater fans. <laughs> I'll do one more immediately.